Right, our reading today is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is the word of God. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. All right, let's do this one more time. He is risen. He is risen. All right, don't get tired of that. It's big news. It's big news. It's good that we can say that. Um, all right, so today's text, you might look at it and you might say, you know what, I don't think I've heard an Easter message from Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Where, where is the Easter message in this passage? Well, I want to assure you there is a very uh, life-giving, a very critical, uh, vital message of the resurrection in this passage. And I want to remind you that every word of Scripture exists in our hands because of the resurrection. Colossians was written because he is risen. And so every word of Colossians is resurrection life and resurrection news. In this passage of Colossians, though, we are fixing our eyes on one of the chief uh, gifts of the resurrection of Christ, which is that it is a message of hope given to us. Paul starts his letter here in Colossians, as he starts many of his letters, with a thanksgiving. And in this thanksgiving, he points glory to God. But also, as he points glory to God, this passage has been given to orient and instruct the Colossians because he thanks God for the hope that is laid up in the heavens. And as he is thanking God, he is also, through those words, working to remind the Colossians their hope is laid up in heaven. And that is so important for them and for us because we are frail and fallible and our hope seems to waver. We are pulling ourselves back to the only hope that can satisfy, to the hope of salvation because Jesus is enough. And we know Jesus is enough because he is risen. Look specifically at verses 4 and 5 of Paul's words. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Look at, at how that sentence is shaped. I spent much of the week puzzling over that sentence. Because you would expect it to say, 
Have faith, and therefore you will have hope. Love others, do good works, and therefore you will have hope. But the sentence is exactly the opposite. It says, have faith and love others because of the hope that is laid up for you in the heavens. You see, the hope is what we claim, and the hope is what gives us faith, and the hope is what bears the fruit of loving others. We believe in the gospel and we love because of the hope already accomplished. The hope is already there. It is already done. And what is that hope? That hope is the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, all has been done for us to have salvation. And so what Paul wants to do in this small paragraph And what I want us to dwell upon here on Easter Sunday is the three reasons that the resurrection makes Jesus enough to fulfill all our hopes of salvation. The call today is for you to place yourself stable and steadfast in the hope of Jesus risen alone. And the question I seriously want you to wrestle with, are you living in the hope of the resurrection. Is that hope your hope? Or have you settled for the hope of a retirement or a sweet family or of something much less? Let's look at this text in detail to see the three reasons the resurrection makes Jesus enough to fulfill all our hopes of salvation. First, we see It makes our hope true. It makes our hope true. In verse 5, we are told the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's already there. It is because of Christ's resurrection that we are told in this passage that our hope already exists. It's not something that will Become. It's not something that we will reach for. It is something that is already there. It is true objectively. In the end of verse 5, he calls it the word of the truth, the gospel. The message that Christ is risen, that you are saved in Christ, the risen Lord, is the word of truth. Truth meaning it's not opinion, meaning it is not Uh, something that may happen or, or may not happen, that it could exist at one time and not another. It is truth. It exists as truth, and as truth, it is eternal. The word of truth, the gospel. So when we talk about this truth, I want us to at least fix on two aspects of this truth. First of all, the truth means there is one message of salvation. The truth means there is one message of salvation. And we read that one message of salvation together in our affirmation of the faith from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Let me me read those verses for you again. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That being, he got this from the apostles. This is common stock common knowledge. This is the very first gospel tract. And when Paul says that he received this, 
He is talking about when he received it as a new Christian. The words that we are reading here are the words that were put down by the apostles within the first three or four years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Scholars will tell you this is the earliest words from the resurrection. And look at what they tell us. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is a, a historical report. Likely, uh, Paul added a couple of the appearances from verses 6, 7, and 8 uh, to the historical report. But what we have in verses 3, 4, and 5 are very likely the, the words that the apostles shared when they were sharing the gospel in Jerusalem in 33, 34, 35 A.D. Which is to say, you can't make this stuff up. It's fresh news. And that makes it very, very dependable. It is very early. It's a historical report. I want you to think, though, how how can we know here in 2019 that this message is true? I mean, there's been a lot of time that's passed. There's a lot of things that could have happened. How can I trust that this message is true? Well, there are many ways we could go about that, but I was uh, thinking about one of my favorite movies, Back to the Future. How many guys have seen Back to the Future? All right, it's from the 80s, but it's, it's worth going back if you're young. And if you're too old, it's still worth probably watching. Back to the Future is this story of, of a kid, Marty McFly, who, who goes back in time and meets his parents and starts messing up history. And he goes back in time with a photograph from the present day that has a picture of his parents and his, his, three, uh, his two siblings and himself. All right? And as he goes back in time and he starts messing up things in history, the photograph begins to change. His oldest brother disappears and, and uh, different things start fading away. And eventually, as the, as the timeline gets weird enough, even his own presence in the past, he starts conceding through his hand. The, 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 the picture is a great way to illustrate that history is a continuum. Okay, what we have today, the realities that we have today are the realities that were created from historical things that happened. And if those historical things didn't happen, then part of the picture we have today would be different. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take ourselves as a picture and delete the facts, alter the history of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And let's see what would happen, what the, what the present day would be like if what was just reported to us was not true. All right, let's go backwards. In verse 8 and verse 7, we're told that Paul and James were witnesses of the resurrection. Now that's significant because if you know the story of Paul, he was no friend of the gospel when it was first preached. He believed it was an absolute false teaching. 
and he went through, and you can read about it in the book of Acts, actually persecuting preachers of Christ until he became an apostle of Christ. Because we are told on the Damascus Road, he actually met the risen Lord who spoke to him. And in all honesty, you can't make sense of the before Paul and the after Paul without the event of, the, of a visible resurrection appearance. It was so startling to the first apostles that they were like, I don't think I want to be near Paul. He's just, he's just using this as a guise to arrest us. And yet Paul did believe, and we know Paul believes because he has written all of these letters and he gave his life to the gospel. But here's the thing. If Paul had not seen the risen Lord, what immediate evidence would we not be able to point to right here in this room? His letters. Your New Testament would not include the Apostle Paul. That's a, that's a substantial reduction. Same with James. James was not a believer in Jesus. He was very skeptical of Jesus. The only thing that makes sense of James uh, becoming a believer of Jesus is what we are told in verse 7, that he saw Jesus. And so when you look at the book of James, you again are looking at evidence of two people who believe with their lives that they met the risen Jesus. But back it up. We're told that Jesus appeared to all of these different witnesses, all of the different apostles. If they hadn't uh, seen the risen Lord, what would they have been like? They would have been cowards. They would have been afraid. They would have slunk away and gone back to fishing. We're told in the book of John that the apostles were hiding in a room, afraid of the Jews, when Jesus came in. We are told of the two apostles on the way to Emmaus who said, We had hoped. We had hoped, past tense, that he was the Messiah. And yet we have uh, the, the apostles preaching the gospel near and far. They preached to their death. They took on martyrdoms. We would not know of these apostles if they had not really truly believed they saw him risen. Back it up, it's told that he was buried. If he was not risen, there would not be an empty tomb. That's a big deal. Nobody in the first century believed in a resurrection with a body in the tomb. And the very first preaching of the gospel was in Jerusalem, where the tomb of Jesus was. And so as, as, as Peter is saying, this one that you crucified and buried, he is risen. What would be the very first thing a common sense person would do? I'm going to go look at the tomb. 3,000 people believed that day. They didn't believe because they were stupid. They believed because there was no explanation for why the body wasn't there. They knew the body was missing. And then we're told, uh, backing it up, that he dies for sins. How many people have ever gotten the reputation for dying for sins? Nobody gets the reputation of dying for sins unless there's a reason to believe that that death was not like other deaths. The only reason that he, his death was considered for someone else is because his death was reversed by resurrection. And then we read these words in the very beginning of the confession. Christ died. Christ died. There is no theology of the Messiah dying. 
The idea of the Christ dying is a proof that he wasn't the Christ. You see, the Christ was the victor. He was the anointed one. He was the son of David that was going to overthrow the oppressors. If that person that you think is the Christ ends up on the cross of the oppressors, under the heel of the oppressors, put to open shame and humiliation, then the, the verdict on whether or not he was the Christ is read to us by the scoffers at the cross. You can save others. Save yourself if you are the Christ. But we only know Jesus as Christ. We only know Jesus is Christ because, only, because something had to happen that took a dead Christ and made him the real Christ. And the only thing that can, can, can make sense of that is if the Christ who died is the only one who rose again. So every time you hear the word Christ, you are hearing evidence that he is risen. And finally, look at that phrase twice, according to the scriptures. Search history. If Jesus isn't the Christ, who's option two? Who's option two for the Christ? There's nobody. There's there's no uh, second up for Christ. 2,000 years have passed by The scriptures have never brought another person that could potentially be the Christ. If it isn't Jesus, then the scriptures are long in the tooth. We would not treat the scriptures as God's word if there was no fulfillment. But because we know these words are fulfilled, we know God's word is true. And so the very fact that we treasure our Bibles is evidence that the picture that Christ died and rose again is the true picture. You take all of that away, you would not have the church, you would not have the gospel, you would not have the scriptures, you would not have the news of a Christ. This is the only thing that explains the picture of the present. And so as we look at that, we have to recognize that the only explanation for the birth of the church and the Bible in our hands is that he is risen. There are hardly any facts of history that can be verified that well. And second, we need to recognize that the truth means there's one message, but we also need to recognize that the truth means there is one faith. Paul says in verse 6, This gospel that you heard and understood. There isn't just, the, the gospel message is specific. It is a specific message that you heard. It is a specific message that you understand. And I think it's also critical that we recognize there are two terms there. Heard and understood. Having the gospel, having the saving message of Christ is risen in your life is more than just hearing. Hearing is not sufficient by the words heard and understood. Both words must be true for saving faith. The word understood is 
uh, epigonosco. It means to have a clear grasp of, of, of the message. It means to, to have a knowledge that trusts. The, the, the idea of understanding this word is like uh, understanding math and, and using it in engineering. Okay, we can, we can know math, but to understand it is to apply it, to say, I, I'm going to trust the math works out and, and, and use it in my life. To, to understand the gospel is to know it and to apply it to my life. And so I say this because I think it applies to people gathered here today. Salvation is not osmotic. Salvation is not something that rubs off on you from parent to child. It is not something that brings in the husband because the wife believes or brings in the wife because the husband believes. It doesn't have coattails. It doesn't apply to you by being in the Bible belt. It's not tied to geography. It's not tied to your culture. Just saying, I go to church. Just saying... uh, 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 any number of, of church words does not have to do with a personal salvation. It is not tied to membership at a church. It is not tied to faithful attendance. None of those things equate to hearing and understanding, which is critical for saving faith. And so the question is, Have you personally applied the gospel message to your heart? To your heart. Have you done the math and put your faith in the equation? It has to be a personal exercise. What must you understand? What must you understand? Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this is the gospel message the first thing you have to see is the words, our sins. The reason Christ died is because of sins. And so if you want to understand your need for the gospel, you have to come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner. You have sinned. You fall short. You are guilty. And when you recognize that, you recognize what Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. You don't belong in heaven as a sinner. Heaven is for righteousness and purity and beauty. It's white snow. And sin makes you yellow snow. Nobody puts a bunch of yellow snow in heaven. It's too beautiful. Second, though, You recognize that you are a sinner, but then you rejoice in these words, Christ died for our sins. You recognize that what happened to Christ on the cross was not him being a victim, but him being a savior. He died in our place. The death that happened to Christ was a death for me and a death for you. Christ died for me, Paul says. Those words must be true in your heart. 
And then he rose again. And by rising again, you recognize that he alone is Savior and Lord. There are no other contenders. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so with those two facts heard, to understand them is to put these words into practice from Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The math is very simple, but you have to do it yourself. Do you believe? Have you confessed your sin and Christ alone as your Savior? That's number one. The resurrection makes our hope true. These second two points are not nearly as long, so don't feel worried. Your ham will not overcook. It makes our hope certain. We know that our hope is true, but it also makes our hope certain because he has risen. Our hope is certain. And we see that at the very end of this passage, verse 8b, which says, in the spirit. This is Paul's single mention of the Holy Spirit in the letter. But it's very important. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is fully God. He is fully personal. And most important to us in the gospel message is that the Holy Spirit is the gift of the risen Lord to all believers. As Jesus said on that first resurrection morning in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is a gift of the gospel that comes through the risen Lord alone. This is so awesome. This is such an awesome gift. The Holy Spirit comes to every person who believes in the gospel. The Holy Spirit makes our hope certain because God has joined himself to you. You have simply said, I confess I'm a sinner and I believe you died for me. And then God says, that's enough. I am latching on to you. I am putting my Holy Spirit in you and holding on to you. You are now mine by your faith, as feeble as it may have been. Colossians has two sister letters, Philemon and Ephesians. And I think it's worth going over to Ephesians where Paul kind of expands on the the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says there these words, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the seal 
of your salvation. It carries the authority and mark of God. I have declared you are saved. For you to not be saved is for God to be a fool. More than that, he says that you have been guaranteed. The word in the Greek is that God, by the Holy Spirit, has put in you the down payment, the earnest money of your salvation. We use earnest money when we buy a house. We put $500 or $1,000 down to say, I am good for the rest. Some of us aren't good for the rest. But you know who is? God. God is good for the rest, and he has deposited the third member of the Trinity into your life to guarantee. He means that if my word is violated, I lose the Holy Spirit. Which is to say, for you not to be saved, I will cease to exist. Because I must exist as the triune God. That is my essence. How certain is your salvation when you recognize that Christ by his resurrection has purchased the Holy Spirit. And so, the Holy Spirit in us confirms his presence. Not just, not just these words, but he confirms his presence through the fruit that he brings through us. And that's what the words, your love in the Holy Spirit means we love as fruit from the Holy Spirit. And that's where we come to our third reason that we know because Christ is risen, our hope, that we have hope in him, that he fulfills our hope of salvation. The third reason is the resurrection makes our hope experiential. Experiential. What does that mean? It means that you don't just have to take my word for it. You want to know your salvation. You want to know Christ is risen. You want to know the hope that I am talking about. You can taste it and see it. You can experience it. You can live in it. And here is how. Be connected to the church. Be connected to the church. Colossians 1.18, God, uh, God said this through Paul. Uh, 1.18, right here. He is the head. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, because he is risen, the church is his body. The church is his body. Uh, Paul works on that theme in, in, uh, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He talks about the body, and we are all individual members of it. The picture is that this body is all put together. It's one body, and that one body has Christ as the head. Now think about that body. That body isn't buckets of parts. That body is put together. If you want to be part of the hope of the resurrection, you are part of the body of Christ. You can't be a severed toe all on your own that says, you know what, I like God in nature, or I like God in fishing. If you want to experience the hope, that part has to be a member of the whole. 
That is how it is designed. The church is the fruit of the resurrection. The church is the fruit of our hope. The church, you guys right here, are the visible hope of Christ is risen to this world. We are the evidence that the Lord is risen. And so verse 4, go back to verse 4 in, in our passage. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. That's the church. Paul is giving thanks for the church that has been created by the hope of the gospel. This is the church. Believers in Jesus vitally connected to one another through spirit-filled love. This same verse uh, is said in slightly different ways in that other sister letter to Colossians, the book of Philemon. It makes it even more clear, as Paul says there, these similar words. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. If you pay attention, the way that Paul has written that is he has put love, which goes with saints, at the far end of the, of the verse, and the words faith and the Lord Jesus, which go together in the middle. What he has done is he has created basically a Big Mac. He's twisted these things together, he's stacked them together, and he says these can't be separated. You have faith in Christ and you have love for the saints. You eat the whole burger. You don't get faith in Christ, you don't just pull out that patty. You get the whole burger. It's been designed syntactically to make sure you recognize that these things are knotted together. Faith and love are meant to be inseparable. And so do you have faith in Christ? Do you have the hope of the resurrection in you? The obvious question Paul asks is, are you vitally connected to the saints? Are you loving the church? If you can't say yes to this, you are either grieving the Holy Spirit or you are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Either way, I say, repent. Because if you want to experience the living hope of the resurrection, God made the church for you to live in and experience it. The church is where we share and show the world the power of the resurrection. Paul says in Colossians 3, he expands on this. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he expands that in 3, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Go through that passage and circle how many times the word other or another is said. You can't live out the realities of of, of the hope of the resurrection, which that is outside of the community of believers. You can't experience it. If you're nowhere uh, to forgive someone, then you're nowhere to experience the power of forgiveness. 
God has designed our hope to be lived out together. If we choose to be outside, it's to let the fruit of the Spirit rot. It's to undermine the gospel's purpose. And it's to erode the assurance of our own hope. The body is is like a place, it's like a fire. The Holy Spirit keeps the body warm by bringing this all together and sharing the Holy Spirit and the, the gospel message together. Have you ever seen a fire burning nice and loud and hot? Have you seen how one coal sometimes pops to the side and just sits out two, three feet from the burning fire? What happens to that ember? It decreases in its redness. It decreases in its heat. And eventually it becomes black charcoal. That's what happens when a believer who is made to find their hope in the resurrection in the communion of the saints forsakes the collection of the saints. They burn out. The assurance of their hope grows faint. And so let us experience and heed this exhortation as those who hope in the risen Lord, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. My friends, thanks be to God he has given us the church to strengthen ourselves and others in the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude, Paul gives us three reasons that the resurrection makes Jesus enough to fulfill all our hopes of salvation. One, it makes our hope true. Two, it makes our hope certain. And three, it makes our hope experiential. All three of those we have as a fruit that he has risen. So where does your hope lie? I'm sure like you all, uh, uh, you experienced grief and sadness as you watched the news of the fire in the Cathedral of Notre Dame this week, seeing this, this 900-year-old beautiful masterpiece burning up. It breaks our hearts. It shows us how how nothing is permanent, how everything in this world is temporary, how even the most beautiful and best things in this world can be destroyed. Let that be a reminder of hoping in anything in this world, including yourself. Nothing in this world can sustain our hopes of salvation because they are all made of dust, just as we are. But the resurrection of our Lord Jesus declares to us we have been called to a better hope, a hope that frees us from small dreams, from temporary desires, from momentary joys, to a hope that fulfills, that lasts, and never disappoints, to hope that lives out its testimony and its new heart in community with one another. Paul calls us to that hope to hope in a Jesus who is enough to secure us into the kingdom of heaven. And so I ask you, are you living in that hope? Have you placed your hope in Jesus alone? He is risen.